This evening we turn in God's inspired word to 1 Peter chapter 1. Reading 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, ye love, in whom, though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did, test, did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. And if he call on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold, from your vain conversation, received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of grass. 
The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away, but the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. I call your attention this evening to 1 Peter 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, the first epistle of Peter, rich in doctrinal and practical instruction, is written to God's people from the viewpoint of their being strangers, pilgrims in this earth. All Christians are indeed strangers in the world because we read in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 6, while they are at home in the body, they are absent from the Lord. Their citizenship is in heaven. That perspective, which must be ours, is the framework within which Peter writes his first epistle. And the central theme is found in one word, hope. A man who is a stranger in a foreign land is characterized by hope for that day in which he will be home again. If you read on in this epistle, you will also see another prominent concept, holiness. Holiness is subordinate to that hope. Peter discusses our hope as Christians from the viewpoint of its being a principle, a principle virtue which controls and regulates our life in the world in every relationship in life. He spells that out in detail in his epistle in relationship to suffering, in relationship to the magistrate, that is, those who rule over us in places of government, in relationship to our persecutors, in relationship to our wives, to our husbands, in relationship to our fellow saints, in our relationship to the world. And all that he writes serves as a guide to us who are strangers in this world. This letter gives us the roadmap, the GPS, if you will, of our journey, guiding us in our pursuit to the heavenly city, even while we travel down some roads that are very difficult and through some territory that is hostile toward us who belong to Jesus Christ our Lord. We notice as we consider this text that our life as strangers, our life in separation from the world, and from a certain point of view, our life of hardship is only the outworking of God's great mercy by which he has separated us from eternity to be his people. We are pilgrims here because, as we saw in verse 2, we are elect in God's counsel, sovereignly separated from the rest of mankind. How horrible it is, therefore, not to be a stranger. We live for heaven even while we are in this world, only if and because we have been chosen and created for heaven in eternity. Election produces holiness. The fruit, the sanctification of the Spirit, the characteristic which marks the Christian stranger. But while the deepest ground of our pilgrimage is our eternal election in Christ Jesus by God himself, 
The source, the fountain of our hopeful journey as strangers is God's work of regenerating us and giving us the life of Christ. It's for that reason that the apostle, having stated those truths, bursts forth in verse 3 with this song of praise, and that must be our song too. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The ancient Scottish preacher from the early 17th century, Robert Layton, remarked that, and I quote, that it is a cold and lifeless thing to speak of spiritual things on mere report. But when men can speak of them as their own, as having share and interest in them and some experience of their sweetness, their discourse of them is enlivened with firm belief and ardent affection They cannot mention them, but immediately their hearts are taken with such gladness as they are forced to vent in praises. End quote. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. To that doxology and main thought, I call your attention this evening under the theme, Begotten unto a living hope. We consider that theme, first of all, by considering begotten unto what, secondly, begotten how, and finally, begotten according to what. Peter writes to those who have been begotten again unto a living hope. The hope of which the apostle writes is something that belongs exclusively to the Christian stranger. The address that Peter uses, namely to strangers, lends itself to a clear illustration of the Christian life. The Christian life, as I indicated in my introduction, is a life which sets us apart from the life of those who are not one with Christ. The life of all who believe is a life found with Christ in heaven. There is our home. There is our residence, our citizenship, to use another biblical concept. So we live presently in a place very uncomfortable for us. That's not to say there aren't things that we Light here, the Lord has created us of the earth. There are therefore very natural ties to things earthly. There are relationships very difficult to sever. There is also much that appeals to us because of our sinful flesh. From the viewpoint of our old man of sin, There is a powerful force within us that reaches out for the things that belong strictly to this world. And from that same point of view, even the Christian has a natural aversion to death. I've seen some of the most godly saints in in the moments preceding their death go through tremendous struggle. But for all those things that characterize us as earthly creatures no different from other men, there is something else which distinguishes us and sets us apart from all other men, women, and children that have no hope in eternity. We have been set apart by the power of God through the Spirit. Peter writes of those 
who are worldly, or Paul writes of those who are worldly in Ephesians 2 verse 12, that they have no hope and without God in the world. We have both hope and the fellowship of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. Though we live here for a time, we realize that our home is in heaven and we long to go there according to the power of spiritual life within us. We're, we are foreigners. We occupy a very temporary place in a strange land. Often in our youth, we don't live in the consciousness of that. But this journey, I tell you, is very temporary. We who have been set apart by God are not natives here. Though we are to a degree familiar with the customs of this foreign land in which we live, though we've picked up a few words of this world's language, we're not citizens here. We travel from day to day strictly passing through. I live for a time at a certain address. Receive the mail there. It's only temporary. You live in a particular place. But it's only a temporary dwelling place until God calls you home. We live in a country inhabited by the enemies of Christ and God. The God whom we love and serve. We can't feel at home here when indeed we are Christ. I can look back on my own experience, and I'm sure you can, and find many things that reflect this uncomfortable feeling of living where we don't belong. The culture of this world is not our culture, except to the extent that it serves us on our journey toward heaven. The motivation of this world is not ours. They live differently. They gather in different places for fun and social fellowship. They look upon this foreigner as someone out of place in their community of earthly permanence and enjoyment. And that's more and more true as time goes on. But I look back, as can some of you in various callings God has given you, one who served formerly as a police officer, I look back in the years before I was led to serve God in the ministry when I was working a second job for an ambulance company in a large metropolitan area. And that emergency medical work often brought me into places and situations where I felt totally out of place. Drug havens, nightclubs, scenes of murder, scenes of rioting. In such places, I did my job. And I was relieved to get out as quickly as possible, feeling almost dirty in some instances for that which I had to observe and experience. But although that example might illustrate this idea of being a pilgrim, a stranger, the fact is that you and I should feel, feel very out of place in this earth now that we've been delivered out of darkness into the marvelous light of God's fellowship. Our fellowship is not with the ungodly. Our motivation is not to seek the things of this earth. And in fact, 
when we are living godly in Christ Jesus, as Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3 verse 12, yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. We are indeed a very tiny minority among a people whose habits of thoughts and feeling, whose pursuits of pleasure are alien from Christ and opposed blatantly or not so blatantly to those who are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. But as strangers, Peter writes, we have a living hope. Hope always has reference to something in the future. Hope is the anticipation of something highly desirable, the fulfillment of an awaited reality. Hope, therefore, is that strong tendency to reach forth, to lay hold of that which has been promised us by God himself. Peter writes to the elect strangers that our hope is to be in familiar surroundings with our own people who speak our own language, to hear the voice and to see the face of our elder brother and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our hope is heavenly. And that is characterized in the text as a living hope that distinguishes our hope from the so-called hope of the world. As I mentioned earlier, Paul had written, there is no hope in this world. Nothing whatsoever. For those who are outside of Christ, who walk impenitent in their sin, who are in bondage to Satan, there is no living hope. All hope that is purely earthly is circumscribed by death. Scripture proclaims that warning from many points of view. We read in Job 8, verses 13 and 14, that the hypocrite's hope shall perish, whose hope shall be cut off. Proverbs 11, verse 7 warns, when a wicked man dieth, his expectation shall perish, and the hope of unjust men perisheth. Proverbs 14, verse 32 The wicked is driven away in his wickedness, but the righteous hath hope in his death. Though the righteous has hope in his death, death shoots the balloon of hope right out of the sky for the unbeliever. The natural man has his heart and mind buoyed by contemplating some increase which will give him happiness. And if such an unregenerate man comes under the influence of man-made religion, then he will seek to persuade himself of something better for himself in the hereafter. But the presumptuous hope, the false hope, of those who neither esteem God's holiness nor fear his wrath will rise up to mock them in the day of judgment. In sharp and total contrast to the false hope of the unrighteous, God's elect strangers are begotten again unto a real living hope. It's a hope based upon the promise of God's word. It's an imperishable hope that looks and lasts beyond the grave, laying hold of that inheritance incorruptible and undefiled reserved in heaven for
for you who are the children of God. And as that hope lives within us, it's characterized by three elements. In the first place, Christian hope is expectation. Expectation. There lies over the horizon of history a glorious city which we shall inhabit and in which we shall dwell safely and securely in the fellowship of our Redeemer. There shall be no sin there, no dying. All tears shall be wiped away from our eyes. And of that expectation, we may be certain. Certain. Because its realization is based upon our Heavenly Father's promise and His Son's perfect work. God has promised us who believe this glorious inheritance, and God's promise cannot fail. For that reason, too, hope includes the element of confidence, expectation, and confidence. Sometimes when we speak as human beings, earthly creatures, we say, I hope so, without confidence. What we really mean in such a case is that I would like this to be this way, but I really don't know. But the hope of the Christian stranger is living a living hope that will never disappoint. The Apostle Paul speaks of that hope when he writes in Romans 5, verse 5, and hope maketh not ashamed. Our confidence is based upon the promise of God, but confirmed in our hearts by the love of God revealed at Calvary. The cross of our Lord Jesus Christ is the certain foundation for our hope. How shall God, who sent his own Son to accomplish our salvation, not bring it to pass? It's impossible and blasphemous even to think. All those who are in Christ Jesus and believe, therefore, shall surely see the realization of their hope. And finally, besides expectation and confidence, this hope of the Christian stranger is characterized by longing. That living hope becomes lively in the soul of the Christian, activating him to patience and steadfastness in the path of Christian duty. Those who are not stirred to spiritual activity those who bear no fruits of righteousness are those who are without hope. But the divine work of regeneration, a spiritual life is given, which life manifests itself by longing after spiritual things, seeking spiritual objects by an earnest desire for the means of grace, for hearing the voice of our Savior by the preaching of the gospel, characterized by a cheerful performance of spiritual responsibilities, duties, according to the scriptures. Such are the marks of a Christian, a hopeful stranger. Because the truth set forth in 1 John 3, verse 3, cannot be overthrown or ignored by us, Every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he, that is Christ, is pure. This hope is ours only by being begotten again. 
That implies you understand that our first birth gives us neither the power nor the ability to be pilgrims and strangers in the earth. Our first birth, though it be to Christian parents, gives us neither the power nor the ability to lay hold of that hope which belongs only to the children of God. Because our first birth is purely natural. David was given to see clearly what is true of all of us. He wrote and sang it in Psalm 51. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. We are born by nature totally depraved dead in trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2 verse 1. By nature, we love the things of the earth. We love that which belongs to darkness. We have no desire for heavenly things, no desire to live to the glory of God. It's exactly for that reason that Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3 verse 3, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The text speaks of regeneration, being begotten again. This second birth is a sovereign act of God alone through the Holy Spirit by which he implants in the hearts of his elect the new and heavenly life of Christ. This concept of regeneration is treated in much greater depth in verse 23 of this chapter, but this much should be noted here. The very term indicates the impossibility of man accomplishing his own salvation. Just as a person is completely passive in his or her physical birth, so it is in our spiritual birth. Furthermore, the mention of regeneration, being born again, is even more of a wonder than the miracle of physical birth. Because in physical birth, God creates out of nothing. But in spiritual birth, God takes that who, which are already formed and he recreates them. He takes those who are totally opposed to him, those who are spiritual bastards, and he makes them sons. He lifts up a corpse, as it were, and breathes into it life. Our first birth did not give us power to be strangers in the earth. Our first birth was entirely of the earth earthy and united us with the world which became our home. The second birth alone being begotten again by the power of God is necessary for us to become strangers in the earth. By being born again, a new life is given to God's people, a life which is everlasting. By regeneration, God causes the light of his eternal gospel to shine in our hearts so that we are turned from our wicked desires and ways, united to Christ, and set on the pathway of righteousness. By regeneration, God causes us to see and to understand and to believe the wonderful gospel of salvation in the cross of Jesus Christ. He causes us to see the reality of that inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that is ours 
through Jesus Christ our Lord. So regeneration is the fountain of our salvation and our life as God's people in the midst of this world. Now again, according to this inspired text, we are begotten again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What a blessed truth is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What a blessed truth in relation to the hope that lives within us. You and I all realize that as believers, we do not always walk as pilgrims and strangers in this world. There are many things and many sins which mark us similar to, not to those elect in Christ, but similar to those who are not sanctified in Christ by the Spirit. You also know that we have to do with a holy and righteous God. We live before the face of him who knows everything, who overlooks nothing. Nothing escapes his all-searching eye, not even the thoughts and intents of our hearts. One of the marks of our new birth is the awareness that there's not one thing that makes us deserving of heaven. Not one thing. Even now, God could justly condemn us as far as our life is concerned. He will have his justice satisfied for every single one of our sins, whether sins of omission or sins that we have committed by our actions or even our thoughts. But the almighty and glorious God sent his only begotten son into the world and named him Jesus. Jehovah saves. That Lord Jesus Christ carried on his mighty shoulders the whole burden of guilt and sin of all God's people from the beginning to the end of the world. He carried that heavy burden to the cross of Calvary. And there upon Calvary, that load of sin and shame pressed him into the depths of hell where he suffered that terrible wrath of God for the sins of all those whom he loved. You believe that? Christ didn't remain dead. He arose. He arose from that sepulcher in Joseph's garden. And the emphasis of the text is that God himself raised up Jesus from the dead. God raised up Jesus from the dead because Christ had perfectly satisfied God's justice and God would declare it to all the world. And so we read in the last part of Romans chapter 4 where in the context Paul is writing about the righteousness that was Abraham's through faith in the Messiah, the Christ, it was imputed unto him for righteousness. Now, it was not written for his sake, that is, for Abraham's sake alone, that it was imputed to him, but for us also, to whom it shall be imputed if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for, that is, because of, our justification 
because Christ accomplished the work for which he was sent, because he redeemed his people, satisfying God's justice, God raised him from the dead. God placed his seal of approval upon the work of his only begotten son. And therefore, when Christ arose, he arose triumphant over sin and death and triumphant over the guilt that was ours. And when he arose, he didn't return to a place in this earth. He was lifted up on high, exalted in the in the heavens, to sit at God's right hand, ruling over all, accomplishing the completion of the salvation of his people. Moreover, he received power in heaven and on earth that he might give eternal life to all that the Father had given him. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17, And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. Ye are yet in your sins. But because he lives, we shall live also who are one with him by faith. This life of the risen Lord, which he received through his resurrection from the dead, is the life of regeneration which we have received and by which we have that living hope. The resurrection of Christ from the dead is the life that is ours as elect strangers. We live because Christ lives. Yes, he lives in us by his Holy Spirit. So we follow in his footsteps. He's our head. We are the body. We follow in his footsteps. We come, he came into this world to suffer at the hands of the ungodly, to die, to rise again, to take his place in glory. We follow him. Through regeneration, we follow his steps. We follow him to a new and heavenly life. We follow him through death into the everlasting kingdom. While we are not yet in possession of the inheritance, he is, as our head and representative, we see not all things yet put under us, but we see Jesus for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor. If Hebrews 2, verses 8 and 9. That's the source of our hope, isn't it? There is no hope for those who are not regenerated, who have not been born again, who do not experience the daily struggle of the Christian, and long for the God to hear the gospel and know the fellowship of God in Jesus Christ? Is it any wonder that so much of this world lives in despair? Do we not long for others to come under this gospel? Beware of false hopes. Let him who never hoped receive now the truth in the love of him who gave it and lay hold of this gospel by faith. Let you who believe abound in hope for blessed is the day when we shall be with Jesus. And all this, writes Peter, is according to the abundant mercy of God. Mercy is that beautiful attribute of God according to which he looks upon his people in all their misery and suffering and longs to deliver them. 
according to his mercy, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, longs to take us into the blessedness of his fellowship, his covenant life, and he would do so according to his good pleasure and for his namesake, because God will be glorified in saving his people in Christ. But let's again be clear on one thing. The mercy celebrated by the apostle here is clearly discriminating, particular. It is that which flows to favored objects by means of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Only those who belong to the resurrected Christ. The Christ of the scriptures are recipients of this abundant mercy. This is redemptive, regenerating mercy. Mercy which fills our hearts with hope. Mercy is needed for the miserable. We need that mercy in the midst of this world. But beloved, God has revealed his mercy to us and applied it to us. We must thankfully acknowledge that in our case that his mercy has been abundant mercy. We've been defiled with abundant sin, haven't we? Only the multitude of his tender mercies could put away those sins by the satisfaction of his justice. We've been infected with an incurable disease. And only overflowing mercy can can cure all our diseases and make us fit for heaven. We've received abundant grace by the mercy of our God. Where sin has abounded, grace did much more abound to turn us from our evil way and lead us in the paths of righteousness? Charles Haddon Spurgeon wrote, and I quote, Everything in God is on a grand scale. Great power. He shakes the world. Great wisdom. He balances the clouds. His mercy is commensurate with his other attributes. It's God-like mercy, infinite mercy. You must measure his Godhead before you can total up his mercy, end quote. Well may it be called abundant when it is as infinite as the boundlessly glorious God. God is infinitely holy. He cannot but hate sin to a degree of which we can form no adequate conception in our minds. God is infinitely just and can no means clear the guilty. He is not a God that has pleasure in wickedness. Neither shall evil dwell with him. The foolish shall not stand in his sight. He hates all workers of iniquity, Psalm 5. How is it then that this infinitely holy and righteous God blesses sinful men and women and children with all heavenly and spiritual blessings? How is it that he makes us, his children, giving us a heavenly inheritance, cheering us with a living hope? It is as the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ that he does this. In mercy, He has made us accepted 
in the beloved. In light of such mercy, do you see on the horizon the complete fulfillment of that hope that lives within us? Already its light shines to us who are strangers here below. And it's a fact. The more you press on in your pilgrim's calling, the stronger and stronger that hope becomes. Troubles and sorrow may increase. Persecution comes. We will have to continue our walk through this valley of the shadow of death. But our hope shall soon be made perfect. Presently we shall go home to fellowship with our merciful Father and His Son Jesus Christ, our Lord, forever. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. No wonder the epistle begins with this doxology of praise. This is an echo of the apostle's heart in response to God's amazing grace shown to him and his fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And as Peter reflected upon the glorious blessings bestowed on such hell-deserving sinners, his heart was drawn out in fervent worship to the God of our salvation. And oh, that the power of God would impart such liberty to us as well, so that we would so rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. How sorry a scene that we who have been so blessed by God should speak or hear or think on these things with so little feeling and so little fruitfulness. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Shall we join in this doxology, beloved? Think on these things. Amen. Gracious Father, we thank thee for thy mercy. And we pray that thou wilt continue to apply thy gospel to our hearts and lives to the glory of thy grace. For Jesus' sake, amen.